Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Let's talk about Catholics, and I know none of you know it. Any Catholics, probably. Probably no, no one knows a Catholic. And since there's so many Catholics we run into, probably a lot of former Catholics in the room, we'd better be uh, well-equipped to discuss it. Roman Catholics in the world today, as we've started every week, remind you that about 7.4 billion people in the world, those that would claim to be Roman Catholic, we've got about 1.2 billion. That's 16% of the world's population would call themselves Catholics, Roman Catholics, claim to be Protestant, which we'll carefully define, redefine these words for us in just a moment, uh, is about 900 million, almost a billion, that's 12%. So there are less Protestants in the, in the world than there are those who would claim to be Roman Catholic. In the United States, though, let's get back to this number, which we've introduced every week, 318 million approximately in our country, Roman Catholics in our country, uh, numbered only about 66 million, I say only, that's a big That's a big chunk. 21% of the American population would claim to be Roman Catholic. Claim to be Protestant. Now, you understand the difference between evangelical, Bible-believing, church-going Protestants, but there claims to be, of people in our country, about 148 million who would claim to be Protestant, 46%. So you've got an inversion of what you have uh, on a large scale of those that would claim to be Protestants versus Roman Catholics. We need to understand our terms as we go forward knowing that we can use words and then read them in different contexts and not quite understand how they're being used. So let's just understand the word Catholic, which comes through Old English and ultimately back to, to Greek. Catholique, which is the word for universal or something that's, that's global, that's far-reaching. In the early creeds coming out of the Greek language in the New Testament, having that word utilized in early creeds like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, you cannot read back into those statements our definition of what we call Catholic, if we mean Roman Catholic, because that's not what they mean. For instance, the creeds will read, I believe or we believe in the Catholic Church, or in this case, the Nicene Creed, in one Catholic and apostolic church. When you read that, you don't have to think about the Pope, hats, and the Vatican. We're not talking about that. They're using the word in a, cla- in a classic general sense, a non-technical sense, which is the way it was used before it came to be associated with Rome, and that is that we believe in one universal church. And we use that word today. If you go through partners, you get to that chapter on the church. And we have to make a distinction between local churches and geographic locations and the work God is doing around the world. There's a work he's doing around the world under Christ, redeeming people in every tongue, tribe, and nation. We would call that the universal church. When we use the word universal in the old days, when we see these creeds translated from Latin into English, uh, it's translated many times Catholic. And what we mean by that is universal, not Roman Catholic. Uh, When we say Roman Catholic, and today when we use the word Catholic, we often mean that as a shorthand for the words Roman Catholic. What we're talking about is the church under the Bishop of Rome, who is, of course, also known as the Pope, which is the word uh, we get... It speaks to the, the Papa, the Father. He's the Father of the church. Many doctrines about him. The church under the Bishop of Rome, that's what we mean when we talk about Roman Catholic. And when I say Catholic for the rest of the night, I'm talking about Roman Catholics, those that would associate themselves uh, under the Bishop of Rome or the Pope. 
Protestant, which we've just tried to distinguish between Protestants and Catholics, that's really the two big categories. There are other categories, the Eastern Orthodox, Oriental Orthodox, Anglican, but the two big divisions would be Catholics and Protestants. And when we say Protestant, what we're talking about uh, are those reformers, which you, if you think about the word, is a little different than the Protestant, especially if you understand the Protestants to be those who broke away from the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church. Reformers, just that word means you want to change things, you want to fix things, you want to renew things, you want to reform things. Well, when we talk about the Protestants, we're talking about those reformers who ultimately protested and and broke with and had to leave uh, the Roman Catholic Church. They were protesting the errors of the Catholic Church. And when there wasn't change within the church and it couldn't be reformed, then they broke away and were labeled the Protestants because they were protesting. The world's shortest church history thumbnail outline, which of course risking oversimplification, Let's just look at this because we need to get these words in in our minds. First century, of course, we had the church established by Christ. He established his church. He sent the spirit and dwelling people. We see the book of Acts describing the early church. The church is launched, the biblical church, the church that we would like to emulate, maybe not in all of their practices, but certainly in all their imperatives. And so we want to do what the church was called to do in Ephesus, in Corinth, in the churches of Galatia, uh, in Colossae. We want, to be, we want to read those inspired books and be the church. And so, of course, the church was established by Christ. That goes all the way back to the first century, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. If I'm going to pick out a high point that starts to underst- help us understand Protestants and Catholics, I've got to go back to the fourth century and in, in the, the Edict of Milan when Constantine was converted in his battle in the Milvian Bridge. And, but when he sees this vision and decides to fight under the banner of Christ, wins the battle, he gets converted, which I think is a genuine conversion, perhaps not at that point, but he seems genuinely sympathetic to Christ and Christianity. It had been outlawed. Now he makes it legal. And in making it legal when you're the boss and, and, and the kingpin of the, of the empire, of course, you saw a mingling, a merging, a linking of church and state. Uh, and this created a lot of problems that came to be known and reached fruition within the Catholic Church, particularly through the Middle Ages. But that's a very important period. 313, the Edict of Milan, out of that came the Council of Nicaea, 325. So we have a very important point in, his, in the history of the church that is going to change forever this form and the function of the church as the church and government, uh, secular government, start to become merged together in the fourth century. This is the real uh, oversimplified section. What is this? Seven, eight centuries here. A lot of power struggles, a lot of disputes, schism of the church. You've got a lot going on there. And in all of that uh, disputing and all the councils and all the, the backlash to the church, because it had been empowered in so many ways, and there's lots of ups and downs during this period, of course, uh, what you find coming out of these Middle Ages is a consolidation of power, ecclesiastical power, church power, church authority. And so you've got all these years, uh, they're the dark ages for a lot of reasons, but certainly as we think of church history, uh, not, not great days for the church. The more you had power rested in the leadership of the church uh, and their own evolving theology, uh, you got a lot of bad doctrine being infused into the church in those eight centuries. And it went on, of course, for many centuries, but beginning in the 13th, 14th century, you started to see early rumblings for theological reform. As we saw the church get merged with the state and we saw a corruption of the doctrine and as it began to uh, increase in its dogma and what it would say, regardless of what the Bible said, uh, you had people that would start to say, this isn't right, we need to, we need to correct it. And the uh, Waldisians from one of the early Catholic 
priest that was willing to protest in, in his way from his pulpit, John Wycliffe, uh, John Huss. You had a lot of people that were saying what we've got going on in the church at large is wrong. It needs to be fixed. Then, of course, in the 16th century, Martin Luther pins in 1517 his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church, which is the problems he has with the Roman Catholic Church, which, of course, was not meant to spark a departure from the church, but certainly to put some things on a docket to say, here are problems, we need to address these. Uh, And you would pin things on the door, not like you see going on in the riots on our cable TV this week. Uh, It wasn't that kind of rebellion. It was really what you would do to put things up to debate them and and discuss them and and, and bring them to the fore to have some kind of of debate regarding these things. And so um, with the invention of the uh, printing press and the ability to have these things spread as they never could have before, you certainly sparked uh, an increasing widespread dissent of the problems in the church, one of them the selling of indulgences uh, to build their cathedrals. And we'll talk a little bit about indulgences as we go through tonight. When Martin Luther and Calvin and, and, and Zwingli and so many other reformers kept calling uh, the church out and certainly couldn't work with the church and the church, you know, disenfranchised these, these very smart guys. What you have is a counter-reformation that takes place, is what we call it, and, and one of the major documents that comes out of that is the Council of Trent, and, and my shorthand is the Roman Catholic Church uh, doubles down on their, on their views. They say, well, you're debating us, and you're saying we're wrong, we're, we're right, and we're going to codify and, and, and put into print the things that you say we're doing wrong. We're going to double down on our, on our views that you're, you're disputing. And with very little correction to any of the concerns you had the church, while it, there was some pushback and I suppose some rebounding of the major problems with the Roman Catholic Church, you had them, in essence, double down on, on the views that they were, that the reformers were dissenting against. In the 20th century, at the end of the 20th century, uh, just before the 21st century, you had the Roman Catholic Church reaffirm its counter-reformation views. In other words, we believe the Protestants are wrong, and though you might hear in pop culture a lot of talk about the Lutherans about the same time saying the Reformation's over, you had a lot of people with the Evangelical Catholic Together Accords saying it was all a big misunderstanding, people that had never read much regarding Catholic theology, it seems, they were, they were saying we're, we're co belligerents we're, we're fighting abortion, we're fighting for moral issues, we're in the trenches together on the moral front, we might as well just join hands and say the Protestant Reformation was a big uh, mistake. And of course, this is the shorthand of history. There's a lot of bloodshed and a lot of persecution and martyrdom of the reformers and people that stood with the reformers. And to say all of that was a misunderstanding is, is a big mistake. And it's clear, as you read in the end of the 20th century, the official doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church, that they are uh, reaffirming the uh, Roman Catholic views that were disputed and, and protested against in the 16th century all the way back to the 14th century in specific ways through Wycliffe and Huss and the rest. So that's what we have. And what we need to do as we deal with Catholics in our workplace, in our families, or maybe you have some affinities to Catholicism, Roman Catholicism, uh, what we need to do is go to those reaffirmations of the counter-reformation views and, and say, okay, if the Church of Rome has not changed, now they have had some change on a, several social issues and there's lots going on, even with our current Pope and Vatican II, I understand, in the end of the 20th century made some changes to several things. But when it came to the doctrine of the Church, the things that split the Church in the 16th century, they're very clear that they are very much in favor of what took place at Trent and they have uh, restated their views on a thousand 
plus topics. So to find those views and to deal with those views, we need to look to these two books, primarily the book on the left, which is the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I like to suggest always the companion to the Catechism of the Catholic Church because there's what you'll find every quote and every footnote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Uh, you'll find those written and spelled out in context in the companion. And what you'll find, the Council of Trent continually quoted, which again, Trent was the counter-reformation. It was their decision to say the reformers are wrong, the Catholic Church is right, and what you'll find as late as, uh, you know, 1992 when this was put out, a lot of affirmation for all that went on uh, to, to put down and dispute and fight the reformers. These two books are important. The one on the left is essential for you. If you know any Catholics, it's a book uh, you need to get. A little bit about this book, and it'll be abbreviated throughout the rest of the night with CCC, standing for the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It is the latest official doctrinal statement from Rome, from the Vatican, put out in uh, 1992. That's when the Latin uh, version actually wasn't copyrighted until 1994, but it's the latest doctrinal statement from the church. It was in the works for many years, and uh, it carries the imprimatur, and we use that word sometimes in our uh, vocabulary about various things, having an imprimatur. Uh, imprimatur is Latin for let it be printed, and when the Catholic Church has something that speaks for its doctrine in an authoritative way, they need an imprimatur. Uh, and the imprimatur, of course, came uh, from the highest levels of the church saying, we believe this, this is our truth, this is our doctrine, this is what we believe. It's authorized and it's approved by the Roman Catholic Church. There are 2,865 doctrinal statements in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. These are paragraphs. Some are short. Uh, most of them are long. And they deal with all kinds of issues relating to the doctrine of what the Roman Catholic Church believes. It is the approved, authorized doctrine of the church in the 21st century, it is the latest doctrinal statement from Rome. For instance, Pope John Paul II said when this came out, it is a valid, speaking of the CCC, it is a valid and legitimate instrument for ecclesial communion, ecclesial, church communion. In other words, this means you're with us. It's a legitimate instrument of that. It's the gauge of that. It's the barometer of that. It's the measure of that. It's the, it's the yardstick. And it shows us whether you're with us or not. It is the ecclesial communion. And a sure norm for teaching of the faith. You want to teach someone what Catholics believe? Go to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. That's what the Pope said. So the Catechism of the Catholic Church, essential from the highest level, the Vicar of Christ, the Bishop of Rome says, this is, this is it. You need to have it. Now, I've set you up with a lot of talk about the official doctrine of the Catholic Church because I want to talk about Catholicism and quote-unquote good Catholics. You have friends. You have relatives. You may be listening to this online thinking you're a good Catholic. Well, that's great. But you need to remember this about Catholicism. Roman Catholicism is, by definition, authoritarian. It's authoritarian. It comes from the top. The doctrine of the church comes from the hierarchy of the church. They are in charge. It's not a democracy. You don't vote on it. Each priest in his parish does not get to choose what they believe. They, if they're going to be good Catholics, have to adhere to the authoritarian doctrinal leadership of the church. The Pope is the vicar of Christ. He is the representative of Christ. He speaks for Christ. He is the apostolic heir of Peter. Uh, he's been given all the authority of Christ on earth to speak ex cathedra without error on earth. He is in charge. And if, if, if I meet a Catholic, I, I want to challenge him to be, well, I don't want him to be a good Catholic, but I want him to be consistent if I'm going to discuss Catholic theology with you to say that you are a part of the Catholic Church. You don't get to make up the doctrine. The Church makes up the doctrine. And your goodness 
or badness, so to speak, as it relates to Catholicism, is really based on how you adhere to the doctrine. They define Catholicism. All the dissidents cannot redefine it. You can say, my priest doesn't believe that, which most of the time when I hear that in conversations, and if I have someone that's heated enough, I will call their priest. And I win those arguments 10 times out of 10, (laughs) even here in Orange County. Sometimes they'll debate, I don't think we believe that. I don't think our church believes that. I don't think my priest believes that. He may not preach on it, but if if they're bearing the name of Catholics, most of them will. Not all of them, I understand. There are liberal priests and maverick priests and, and maverick parishes, but dissidents cannot redefine Catholicism. I mean, I know you'll see, you watch the news or something, they'll have a Catholic on there, and what's your view of this or that? To be a good Catholic, you have to toe the line of the Catholic doctrine. Catholics denying official doctrine, I just want to say, are bad Catholics. If you say, I don't believe that, because I'm sitting there showing you something from Scripture, and you're saying, I don't believe that, well, then you are, by definition, in an authoritarian religion, you are a bad Catholic. See, evangelicalism, Protestantism doesn't work that way. But Catholicism does. It has a hierarchy. It is a pyramid. You move to the top. And as we'll see, the authority of the church is the most important aspect. It is what makes the Catholic church the Catholic church. So if your Catholic friends, if if I say things tonight that offend you, and you say, oh, I don't believe that Catholics believe that, everything I say will be documented on the screen. What you need to do, look it up in context, see if I've misquoted it. And then if you say, well, my grandmother's Catholic, she doesn't believe that, well, then she's a bad Catholic. And I'm all, for, I'm all for bad Catholics, by the way. Bad Catholics who favor the Bible over Roman Catholic doctrine should be encouraged to become Protestants, protest with us. That'd be great. Join our team. Because if I start saying, here's what they believe, here's what you believe, look at the distance between that. Wouldn't you say that's wrong and you're right? Well, great. If you're going to side with the Bible, that's all we do over here in the, in the Protestant side. We're just saying we're going to stick with what the Word says, not with what your church says. Therefore... You might as well just join us. The badder the Catholic you are, let's just say it in grammatic, grammatically incorrect, the more, the more I'm with you, man. So I'm with you. Come be as bad a Catholic as you can be, doctrinally at least, and come with me to look at what the Word says. And let's just continue the disagreement, the dissent. You can't redefine Catholicism, but you can move away from it the more you choose to believe what the Bible says over and against Catholic doctrine. That's so important, what I've just said right there. If you don't catch that, that's the key. A lot of, I was just talking briefly. Well, how do we deal with Catholics? Start here. Are you a good Catholic or are you a bad Catholic? That, that's important. I always like to say, I don't care. The Mormons came to my door this week. I had no time for. Yeah, that's fun. But I always, here's how I always want to deal with them if I have any time. I'll say, I'll say this. Listen, I'm willing to become a Mormon today. I'm willing to become a Catholic today. I'm willing to become Zoroastrianist. I'm, I'm, I'll become whatever. As long as we can determine that what you're saying is true. So we have to determine that. With Catholics and Mormons, I mean, there's a lot of different epistemologies on how we determine truth. But when it comes to Catholicism, it's it's the same way. All I want to do is figure out what the truth is. And it's always going to come back to uh, issues of of authority. I just want everyone's going to discuss God and his son and and the word and and the truth. We've We've got to deal with who says, okay? And so this is the most important section after we establish that. Let's talk about authority. And some of you downloaded the Catholic catechism already or you pulled it up on your window. I'm just giving you my word. I'm quoting these things in context. But let's quote a little of the Catholic catechism. Section 95. It is clear, therefore, that in the supremely wise arrangement of God, note these words carefully, sacred tradition, that's what the church has done, that's what they do, that's their liturgy, that's, their, that's, the, that's the history of the church, 
sacred scripture, that's what you know, the Bible, with some added books called the Apocrypha, more on that later, and the magisterium, the authority of the church to teach doctrine, new doctrine if they have to. Doesn't matter. They have the authority to teach because they've been endowed with the authority of Christ through Peter, they, they believe. And the church are so connected and associated. Now take that. That's three legs on a table. Picture a stool with three legs. You've got tradition, what the church has done. You've got scripture, what the Bible says. And then you've got the magisterium, what the church teaches. What it's done, what it teaches, what, it, what the Bible says. They're so connected and associated. Now this is what the Pope says. This is what Vatican says. This is what the Catholics say. That one of them cannot stand without the others. There should be gasps with that statement. You can't have one without the other. The stool falls apart. In other words, you've got the Bible, which is as important as the church tradition, which is important as the church's ability and authority to teach truth and doctrine. You cannot have one of them stand. It cannot stand without the other. The Bible cannot stand as a, as a guide for truth without the church tradition and the church's power and authority to teach doctrine out of thin air if they'd like to. By revelation of God, I'll show you that. Working together, tradition, scripture, and the teaching of the church, magisterium, each in its own way, under the action of the Holy Spirit, of the one Holy Spirit. So we've got one Holy Spirit speaking to mankind through three avenues. Tradition of the church, new doctrine of the church, the teaching of the church, and the Bible. They all contribute effectively to the salvation of, of souls. God's speaking through three avenues to mankind to save them. So you, gotta have, you, can't, I mean, you can't have one without the other. You can't have They can't stand independently. They all work together. I've got three authorities now. And according to Catholic doctrine, section 95, the official authorized teaching of the church, I cannot possibly have one and say, this is going to be it. When they disagree, I have to somehow harmonize all three. And when you've got three cooks in the kitchen, you've got some trouble. Roman Catholic authority. Section 97, sacred tradition and sacred scripture. What the church has taught, what it's done, and sacred scripture. They make up a single deposit of the word of God. In other words, when you talk about what is the word of God, the revelation of God to men, when he speaks to his creation, we got one word, but there's like, there's like two ways. There's the written word, and then there's the tradition and teaching of the church. They, they are one Bible. The doctrine you find in scripture, and the doctrine that's been taught and, and lived out by the, by the church. And whenever they talk about the church, by the way, or tradition of the church, the holy tradition, all we're talking about is the Roman Catholic Church. Roman Catholic Authority, section 889. In order to preserve the church in the purity of the faith handed on by the apostles, Christ, who is the truth, willed to confer on her a share of his own, not just authority, but infallibility, the infallible authority, by a supernatural sense of faith, the people of God, under the guidance of the church's living magisterium, it's always there, the ability for the church to teach doctrine, unfailingly adheres to the faith. You've got words infallibility and unfailingly. The church's teaching arm can teach today something that is revealed only by God's spirit. And that becomes the supernatural endowment of infallible, unfailing truth. Section 890, Christ endowed the church's shepherds, that's the leaders, the teachers, with the charism, that's, that's the, the Greek word for gift, the supernatural gift, that's the word we see in the Greek New Testament in like 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, the gifts of the Spirit, Romans 14, the con of Romans 12, the supernatural gift. Christ endowed the church's shepherd with a supernatural gift of infallibility 
in matters of faith and morals. Now, I'm already thinking of your friend at work who says he's a Catholic, and you say, well, I know your priest, the magisteriums, the pope, they have, inf- they have the gift of infallible teaching in matters of faith and morals. Oh, I don't believe that. Well, you don't believe that. You're bad. You're bad. You're my kind of Catholic. You're bad Catholic because that's what the church teaches. These guys can get there in their robes and, and they can decide something. And that is the infallible truth. It's as infallible as Romans chapter eight or John chapter three, Roman Catholic authority. Section 891, the Roman pontiff, that's the Pope, the head of the college of bishops. He's the Bishop of Rome, the head bishop, enjoys this infallibility in virtue of his office, just by being the Pope. He has that gift. He enjoys that charism, that that gift of infallibility. When as the supreme pastor, shepherd, and teacher of all the faithful, the infallibility promised to the church is also present in the body of bishops when together, when together with Peter's successor, that's the Pope, they exercise the supreme magisterium. So they have the college of bishops, they get together and they decide something about what Mary did or didn't do. Bam! That is the infallible truth from heaven. They exercise that supreme magisterium above all in an ecumenical council when they have a council, which has been several throughout church history. When the church, through its supreme magisterium, proposes a doctrine for belief as being divinely revealed, if they say it's it's revealed from heaven, and as the teaching of Christ, the definitions must be adhered to with the obedience of faith. You must do it as much as you must do what you find in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is authoritative and binding on all Christians. That's got to be new to some of you at this point. That, that, oh wow, that's that's a big claim. And you might picture things like this being said about the leaders of the church and you go back to medieval days of some abusive time and you picture some oil painting of some power hungry administrator who's the Catholic Pope. This is in the 1992 version, which has been revised by the way. The second edition came out in 2000. So it is a 21st century doctrinal statement of the, of the Church of Rome. They have the ability to reveal truth, new truth, truth that is to be adhered to, and you must do it. It's, it's the Word of God. Section 795. Christ and His Church thus together make up the whole Christ, Christos totus, the whole Christ. In other words, now we're moving into a, if Christ walked in the room, remember the illustration a couple weeks ago, I said if He walked out and said, you, you know, go get me a, a bottle of water, and then He said, go change jobs. If Christ walked out and said that, man, that's, that's Christ, the head of the church. Christ has that authority, and the church, together, they make up the whole Christ. The church is one with Christ. See, you, you understand what that's saying? We might say, Christ is the head of the church. We're the body. And, and we'd say, okay, I guess in the analogy, we're all one. But you see, you've already defined what you mean by that. And that is that the Christ authority... The ability to do and say things that come from heaven, the revelatory work of Christ, it's not just found in Christ himself. It's found in the church. And and that's clear throughout the catechism. But I'll quote Richard Newhouse, who just died not too long ago, a very outspoken, very articulate Catholic spokesperson, writer, author, cleric. He said, for the Catholic, faith in Christ, he was all a part of, by the way, this Catholics and, and Protestants together, evangelicals and Protestants. He wrote a lot of these things. This one actually came from the Evangelicals and Catholics Together book that was put out by Word Publishing in 1995. This is on the chapter called The Catholic Difference. He said, for the Catholic, faith, faith in Christ and faith in the church are one act of faith. In other words, when you come to faith in Christ, you're putting your faith not only in Christ, I trust in Christ, but I'm trusting in his church. 
the church and Christ, because together one cannot stand without the other. If I know Christ through Holy Scripture, I also know Christ through the Holy Tradition and the Holy Magisterium of the church, what they've done and what they've taught. And if that guy, well, who is this guy? I see meet the press over his shoulder. I don't know, he's some TV guy. Well, how about this guy? He knows a little bit about the church. Pope, Pope Benedict said this. He said, the church described, is described, is the context, right? The church described as the incarnation of the Son. That's what the church is. It is the incarnation of the Son, continuing until the end of time. See, so you've got to understand what they believe about the authority of the church. The church can speak authoritatively. Now, it has to be done properly in their college of bishops when they gather together in an ecumenical council or when the Pope decides to speak ex cathedra on a matter. But the church itself has as much authority as Christ because that, together they make up one authoritative entity. And when you come to Christ, you put your faith in Christ and you put your faith in the church. That's big. Do you realize how big that is? And, and I hope if you've been in a Protestant church very long, that to you is like fingernails on a chalkboard. Like, how does that? Are you kidding me? That's huge. With that in view, let's talk about how do I get saved? It starts with baptism. Let's talk about these things for the rest of our time together. Only by quoting, I don't think I have another quote from here on out, except from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Baptism, which looks a little different, a lot more festive here at Christmas time, apparently, than you'll see on our platform. And when we have baptisms, which we're going to have this weekend, um, if Christ doesn't come back first, I try to make it super clear what it is and what it isn't. You've been around long enough that it almost gets boring and tedious, and here he goes again on the, what is the baptism of Savior or not. But I got to do that. I got to do that because a lot of people grew up with this, Right? Well, okay, it's fancy. The guy wears a hat. Is it all that different? Let's talk about it. 1250, section on baptism. Born with a fallen human nature. Oh, we're on the same page so far. Tainted by original sin. Oh, totally believe that. Children also have the need of new birth. Now, that sounds like John 3. Are you talking? You can't be talking about new birth. Yes, new birth in baptism. To be freed from the power of darkness. Now look at these phrases. And brought into the realm of the freedom of the children of God. To which all men are called. We're all called to be children of God. To get out of that realm of darkness. The sheer gratuitousness of the grace of salvation. That means it's free of charge. It doesn't, it, we, don't, we don't earn it. Is particularly manifested in infant baptism. That's where we see the grace of God channeled to people. The church... And the parents would deny a child the priceless grace of becoming a child of God. Now it's just out on the table. Were they not to confer baptism shortly after birth? So when I don't baptize my kid, now you understand why your, your mother-in-law, you've got to get your kid baptized in the Catholic Church. Why? Because if she's a good Catholic, she understands what's happening in that act. You pour that water over the head of that baby, you are right then making that child a child of God. The new birth. Conferring salvation on the child. Baptism. Section 1265. Baptism not only purifies from all sin. And this is the context of the catechism dealing with water baptism. Baptism not only purifies from all sin. That's a big statement. But it also makes the neophyte, the new convert. As soon as I pour the water on their head, I now have made a new convert. I've made them now a new creature. Now the catechism puts that in quotes. Why? Because it's a quotation from 2 Corinthians 5.17 a new creature in Christ, an adopted son of God, Ephesians chapter 1, who has become a partaker of the divine nature. That's what Peter said in his epistle. All of these, of course, directed to adults who are repenting of their sins and putting their trust in Christ. But 
No, you pour that water on the head of that child. You've just done that. You've made them a member and a co-heir with him and a temple of the Holy Spirit. You've just stacked on a ton of biblical metaphors and analogies. You can quote all those passages. You know where they come from. If not, you could look them up on your logos. All of these are biblical descriptions of people being pulled out of the realm of darkness into the family of God. It happens with water sprinkled and poured on the head of an infant. And if you've been around here, you've heard me talk about the Latin phrase ex opere operato, that it's done because of the act itself. The participant doesn't need to be involved. That's why the infant can be saved in baptism. That's how he can get purified from sin. That's how he becomes a new creature, adopted child of God, partaker in the divine nature, member of Christ, co-heir with Christ, and a temple of the Holy Spirit. Because he's just sitting there wondering when the next meal is. But the church, functioning in its authoritative role as Christ incarnate till the end of time, having the authority of Christ himself has just conferred on him an act that they believe and have said and have stated in their doctrinal statement makes this person a child of God. Baptism. Oh man, I wasn't baptized. I'm starting to believe this stuff and I'm going to leave Compass Bible Church. Well, great. They can baptize you too. And they will. And you better go get it because you need the authorized church, the vicars of Christ and the descending authority from heaven to wash away your sin. And that needs to take place in the church, capital C, the Roman church, the Catholic church. Yes, they will baptize adults. And you better bet if you believe their doctrine, you'd better go do it. Because that's the act that makes you a child of God. That's the act that makes you the temple of the spirit. 1272, Catholic Catechism 1272, incorporated into Christ by baptism. As though it's not clear enough, right? We get it now. The person baptized, even this new word, not a biblical word, but is configured to Christ. It's like the tumblers of the safe, the combination, click, right? You're configured to Christ. Baptism seals the Christian, there's a biblical word, with the indelible spiritual mark. This is their parentheses here, character of his belonging to Christ. Now he's just been made to be connected to Christ. No sin can erase this mark, even if sin prevents baptism from bearing the fruit of salvation. Given once for all, baptism cannot be repeated. You then have had the church confer on you these gifts mediated through the church, through the priesthood, coming down from the vicar of Christ, the bishops, and ultimately the bishop of Rome. And that is the work of God and your heavenly files are, are changed from that point on. This is not just, well, it's a nice, it's a fun thing to do. You know, it's like just, it's, a, it's like a baby shower. It's not. 1257. The Lord himself affirms that baptism is necessary for salvation. And I would ask you, if you're a good student of the word, does Christ say that? Of course not. I'll get up on Sunday. I'll get up on Saturday night. We'll do some baptisms. And every time I'll try to make very clear the distinction between water baptism and being baptized into Christ. Couldn't be any more clear, even in the statements they're about to refer to and the allusions in this passage. He doesn't make baptism necessary for salvation. And yet he says, I'm going to quote from Matthew 20, 28. He also commands his disciples to proclaim the gospel to all nations and to baptize them. You're right, to baptize them. But the them there, the disciples, you have to make a disciple by teaching them of Christ to the place of conversion and you baptize the ones that have been made disciples. Not necessary for salvation. Baptism is necessary for salvation, they say, for those to whom the gospel has been proclaimed and who have had the possibility of asking for this sacrament. That's speaking there in that sense for adults or the parents of the infant. The church does not know of any means other than baptism that assures entry into the eternal beatitude, the happiness, the heaven. This is why she takes care of the church, not to neglect the mission that she has received from the Lord to see that all who can be baptized are reborn of water and the spirit. 
Go back to my Easter sermon when I taught through John chapter 3. If you think John 3 with Nicodemus is a discussion of water baptism, it is not. It's an allusion to the prophecies of Jeremiah. Very clear. There's no doubt in my mind from that, and you can listen to that exposition of that passage, that it's exactly what Nicodemus understood as a teacher of the law. This was a reference to the new covenant commandment from Jeremiah. It's not about water baptism that was yet to come and even be commanded at the end of the Gospels. But here is a misinterpretation of Scripture. But again, I can't say that because I don't have the authority of the church. They can say it, and they can interpret the Scripture how they'd like. And they're saying it is, that the reference in John 3, as it's alluding to, is a reference to conversion. 1256, the ordinary ministers of baptism are the bishop and the priest, and in the Latin church, also the deacon. In the case of necessity, now notice how important baptism is to salvation. Because you're going to say, you're going to raise your hand and say, what about Some guy on the battlefield, been a jerk his whole life, hates God, atheist, now he's shot, he's bleeding out, he wants to be saved, and you are a good, diehard Catholic, what do you do? Well, in the case of necessity, anyone, even a non-baptized person, with the required intention, you know what you're trying to do. You can baptize by using the Trinitarian formula, baptismal formula, and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you can say that. The intention required to will to do what the church does when she baptizes. The church finds the reason for this possibility in the universal saving will of God and the necessity of baptism for salvation. This is how important baptism is to Roman Catholic doctrine. A non-Catholic can baptize someone and save them through the act, the ex opere operato act of you just being there, and then the conference of God's salvation through the will of God wanting to save people just by bapt. I could be a, I could be an atheist and I can baptize you, and that act changes you. It makes you an adopted child of God. It purifies you from sin. This is how important baptism is for the salvation of souls to the Roman Catholic Church. This is where you go. You got, a, you got a Catholic friend? You got to go as if someone came up to you at some other, you know, Christian denomination. Say, well, you got to be baptized or you're not saved. At that moment, you get saved. Of course, that's not the case. We do get saved through the work of baptism. And we've taught on that. You should know that. We can work through those passages afresh. If you're not familiar with it, all of it is out there. It's in our partner's manual. It's any good and fair reading of the text will lead you to that conclusion. Baptism is the foundation of our salvation if I'm a Catholic. The Eucharist. Let's talk about that. When we do the Lord's Supper, oftentimes I'll tell you that Eucharisto, the Greek word, Thanksgiving, we get that word from the explanation in 1 Corinthians about the Lord's Supper. It means Thanksgiving, and it is the meal of Thanksgiving, the cup of Thanksgiving it's called. They take that Greek word, they transliterate it into English, and that's their reference to what we would call the Lord's Supper. Let's talk about the Eucharist. 13.25. And I don't even have time, by the way, to get into transubstantiation and consubstantiation, but they do believe that this turns into the body and blood of Christ. If we had more time, if I was doing a series on this, we could talk about all the details of that, certainly what they teach and what they believe, even in the catechism of the Catholic Church. But I want to talk about what they believe happens. Efficacious. This is an important word. The Eucharist, the partaking of the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, is the efficacious sign. It affects something. It's just like baptism in the ex opere operato of something happening to you through the administering, the proper administering, through, through a priest, something to you, the sign, this visible, tangible, tactile experience, and sublime cause of that communion in the divine life. Now, that's an interesting statement. The Eucharist is the efficacious sign and the sublime cause of that communion in the divine life. It's my lifeline to, to me, my spiritual life. And that unity of the people of God 
Now I'm part of this church of Catholicism now, Roman Catholicism, by which the church is kept in being. I mean, we, are, we, we consist by this practice. It is the culmination both of God's action sanctifying the world in Christ. So something's happening to me. It's that efficacious sign that sanctifies me. It sets me apart from the rest of the world. I'm part of the, the, the people of the world being called out. And of course, in my direction, as a conscious person, and the worship and, and, and the worship men offer to Christ and through him to the Father and the Holy Spirit. So it's an act of worship, clearly, as we would say, those like in the line of Zwingli and the Reformers who said, no, this is a memorial meal, we're to remember Christ, that's what he said, doesn't turn into the body of blood of Christ, but I worship him through this, I give thanks to him through this, I remember the death of Christ. They have that side of it, but then the important thing about the Eucharist is the efficacious sign, the effectual working of my participation in this meal that gives me that connection to the life of God. Let's keep going. 1366. Christ was once and for all to offer himself to God the Father by his death on the altar of the cross. I'm with you there. To accomplish there an everlasting redemption. Oh, keep the period and let's end it right there. That's a great statement. But mm, because his priesthood was not to end with his death, the last supper on the night that he was betrayed, quoting there 1 Corinthians, he wanted to, and those, those are his words, that's their brackets, to leave to his beloved spouse, the church, which is the completion of his body, the fulfillment of his authority, a visible sacrifice. Now it is a sacrifice, that's what's divine, by which the bloody sacrifice, which he was to accomplish once, once for all on the cross, would be represented. It's memory perpetuated. I'm with you on the memory perpetuated part. Until the end of the world, and its salutary power to be applied to the forgiveness of sins that we daily commit. So now there's this power, the, the health-giving power. That, that's what the word means. It, it gives, me, gives me spiritual life, that power to be applied to the forgiveness of sins which we commit. So something's happening to me as that sacrifice is represented. And that's how they put it, R-E-presented. It's represented as the bloodless sacrifice that not only is the memory perpetuated, but it's applied for the forgiveness of sins that we commit every day. 1392. What material food produces in our bodily life? Holy communion wonderfully achieves in our spiritual life. So when I eat, I get my health, my energy, the carbs. Holy communion does that for my spiritual life. It is my connection to God. Communion with the flesh of the risen Christ, which of course there's the reference to transubstantiation. It turns into the body of Christ. A flesh given life and giving life. So it's not just a given life, but it's a giving life through the Holy Spirit. What does it do? It preserves, it increases, and it renews the life of grace received at baptism. So I get the life of grace. I become a child of God at baptism. And then I'm preserved, it's increased, and it's all renewed by my partaking of the Eucharist. This growth in Christian life needs the nourishment of Eucharistic communion. I've got to take this to keep the grace flowing. That's the teaching of the Catholic Church. That's why everyone, even if you don't listen to a sermon, even if you're going to snore your way through the first part, even if it's in Latin, go up, get the wafer, because that is the grace of God nourishing and keeping your Christian life going, the Eucharist. 1393, Holy Communion separates us from sin. See, now we're, we're expanding this, this effectual work. The body of Christ that we receive in Holy Communion is given up for us. It's given for us and it's giving life. And the blood we drink, transubstantiation, shed for the 
shed for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Another quote from Scripture. For this reason, the Eucharist cannot unite us to Christ without at the same time cleansing us from past sins and preserving us from future sins. So when I take the Eucharist, I'm washing my sins away, right? That, let's leave that one up for a second. Eucharist cannot unite us with Christ, if that's what they say it does, without at the same time, it expels the darkness of my sin, cleanses me from past sins, and it's the protection that I need, preserves me, nourishes me, strengthens me, keep me from future sins, the Eucharist. Oh, so much more can be said on that, but you've downloaded the CCC. You should spend some time reading through that section on the Eucharist. There's much more that can be said, but that, I think, are some of the pertinent issues. Let's talk about penance. Oh, the church doesn't believe that anymore. Mm, wrong church believes in penance. Today they like this phrase. They call it the sacrament of reconciliation. Your grandpa called it confession, going to the confessional, penance. The old school name, the sacrament of penance. Penance, by the way, is the Latin word um, that, that is the cognate of, of repentance. And there you can even hear the word in that, repentance. Um, it's our response to sin. Now I know I need to be nourished through the Eucharist to keep the grace coming into my life that keeps me spiritually alive. A sacrament, by the way, which you'll see in the CCC that we're about to look at, uh, is that act of God working in the church and through the church for the effectual work in, in people's lives. More on that a little bit later. Penance. Now, I mean, this was the, I think this was the Catholic Youth Day when they had all these booths set up. I mean, they have a, I've seen lots of, of examples of this. The open booth, not the old cloistered closet booth. All right, penance. Let's take a look at it. 1420. Let's start there. Through the sacraments of Christian initiation, that's when you get baptized. That's when you become a, an initiate, a neophyte, as they said, a convert. Man receives the new life of Christ. So when I engage in the sacraments, I become a Christian. Okay? Efficacious work of the church. Ex opere operato. It's working in me through the manufacturing of, of something God does because the church does it to me. This new life as a child of God can be weakened and even lost by sin. Now, that's a problem. So... I need to fix that. Those who approach the sacrament of penance obtain pardon from God's mercy for the offense committed against him, okay? And are, at the same time, reconciled with the church. So I fix it with God, I fix it with the church. Which they have wounded by their sins and which by charity, by example, and by prayer labors for their conversion. And conversion means, in this case, the turning from those sins and being rightly connected relationally to God. So I need the I need the sacrament of penance as the, as the tool to make this happen. And again, a lot of people would say, well, I, I know people, and they don't do the confession thing anymore. They don't do the penance thing anymore. It's as in vogue and as valid now as it's been, and I, I will show you that, though some of the forms have changed. You may not see the old box at, at a lot of places, uh, but let me, I'll show you plenty of pictures and, and give you explanations from the CCC. Catechism says, it is called the sacrament of conversion. That means I'm turning back from sin. I did something wrong. I need to get it right. Now we call it confession, repentance. Because it makes sacramentally present, Jesus is called a conversion. So there is some kind of efficacious work of this thing, this sacrament called penance. It's, it's, it's God's manifestation of the call to turn me around. The first step in returning to the Father from whom one has strayed by sin. It is called the sacrament of penance since it consecrates the Christian's sinner's personal and ecclesial steps of conversion, penance, and satisfaction. That's a big word. We'll look at that a little bit more. But the idea of getting my relationship right, there has to be some kind of repair, reparation. There has to be some kind of payment made. There has to be some kind of paying back. We'll look at indulgences in a minute. But the concept of penance starts here. 
1424. It's also called the sacrament of confession. That's what grandpa used to call it, right? Since the disclosure or confession of sins to a priest is, I thought it was, it's not in vogue anymore. I thought they didn't demand it, is an essential element of this sacrament. The sacraments are God's way of fixing my life before the divine holy God. That requires, according to this text, which is the official authorized doctrine of the church. It is an essential element of this sacrament. So I meet a Catholic, confessing Catholic. Do you go to confession? Do you go to engage in the sacrament of penance? It's essential. It's called the sacrament of forgiveness since by the priest's sacramental uh, absolution, God grants the penitent pardon and peace. Do you see the mediatorial work there? It is by the priest's mediation, that sacramental uh, absolution, God then says, I'm not going to count that sin against you. And the priests, through that work, grants you that pardon and peace. So you may not be in a booth, but you better get to your priest and you'll watch them as they do this with their hand up, signifying their authority to absolve you from sin. And if your kid, man, if I was a Catholic, I'd have one on, on, on the baseball. I mean, we'd have a first base coach. I'd have the, the coach, you know, the assistant coach, and we'd have a priest on my baseball team because my kid's going to sin out there on the field and I need absolution of my kid's sin. He got baptized as a, as a child. He's, he, got, he got saved. He's now taking the Eucharist. He's, he's nourishing his spiritual life, but he's going to sin. He needs the priest to absolve his sin and get that granting of forgiveness. 1441, only God forgives sin. Oh, you got, you got me there. I'm with you, man. Since he is the son of God, Jesus says of himself, the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he exercises this divine power. He says things like this, your sins are forgiven. Great. Can we put a period there and and move on? No. Further, by virtue of his divine authority, he gives this power to men. (laughs) Really? To exercise it in his name. Just tag his name onto that. Now think about that. They're saying... Only Christ can forgive sins. Oh, of course, but now this goes back to authority. The church itself is the rest of the whole enchilada here. Christ is the head. The church is his body. That doesn't mean what we'd, mean, what we'd understand it to mean as we read the New Testament. We follow him. He, he makes the rules. He's in charge. He's the nerve center, the control center. We, everything is for him, to him, through him. No, we as the church now, not you, you're just laity, rank and file, right? But as the clergy rises in the ranks, they now have this authority to become a part of this magisterium, this teaching authority. And they have authority granted by God. And it is even the authority as it's given to the priest to speak in the name of Christ and absolve sin. So you better get to church. You better get that power that is granted from God to have that mediatorial work through the priest to forgive your sins. Penance, so important. 1446, Christ instituted the sacrament of penance for all sinful members of the church, which of course I don't see anything that looks like penance according to the Catholic Church in the Bible. But even that, they'll say that's the tradition. The things that the Catholic Church teaches came through some oral means. It's kind of like, as we were talking about Islam, you got the words of of Muhammad recorded in the uh, Quran, and then you've got the Hadiths, that, that are kind of the oral stuff that came later and were written down. It's, it's, in essence, the church has that right to give binding authoritative explanations and requirements and imperatives to the church. Christ instituted the sacrament of penance for all sinful members of the church, above all for those who, since baptism, have fallen into grave sin, serious sin, you certainly need it, and have thus lost their baptismal grace and wounded ecclesial communion. I mean, you don't even fit in anymore because you're doing some bad things. You've lost the grace that you got at baptism because you sinned it away. It is to them that 
It is to them that the sacrament of penance offers a new possibility to convert and to recover the grace of, they just make it clear with legal forensic terms here, justification. So the declaration of you being right before God, you get it back if you go through the sacrament of penance. Now the fathers of the church present this sacrament as the second plank of salvation. Now think about these words. When you engage in the sacrament of penance, it is the second plank of salvation after the shipwreck, which is the loss of grace. So as a Christian, you sin, right? You now need to get your salvation, the second plank to to gird this thing up by engaging with authorized priests who have the authority to speak absolution of your sins in the name of of Christ. 1447, over the centuries, the concrete form in which the church has exercised this power, because they have the power received from the Lord, has varied considerably. And that's where they'll say, well, Vatican II and other councils, we've started to change the way this is implemented. And certainly that's the case. During the first centuries, the reconciliation of Christians, that means when they get right with God again after sin, who had committed particularly grave sins after their baptism, for example, idolatry, murder, or adultery, was tied to a very rigorous discipline. They had to do things like whip themselves on the back. They had to do the penance that was really severe. According to which, penitents had to do public penance for their sins, often for years. They had a long list of things they had to do before receiving reconciliation. No, they've kind of lightened up on all that. But you need to know, they have the authority to choose to do whatever they choose to do in giving you assignments to make back the grace of God through your penance. 1447 continues, from that time on, the early church, the sacrament has been performed in secret between the penitent and the priest. That's when we got the box going. This new practice envisioned the possibility of repetition and so opened the way to a regular frequenting of this sacrament. You can go back, going back, and every little sin, no matter what it is, you can get that fixed through some kind of assignment and the mediation of the priest. It has allowed the forgiveness of grave sins and venial sins, that's minor sins, that's the misdemeanor sins, to be integrated into one ecclesiastical celebration. In its main lines, this is the form of penance that the church has practiced down to this day. So get out there. You go to the the priest. You confess your sins. You don't need the box. You don't need the wall. But you do need to speak to the representatives of the church. And though a priest may not be big into this at the, the church down the street, this is the official teaching of the church. And that is an important way for you to gain and renew that grace that you received at baptism. 1456, confession to a priest is an essential part of the sacrament of penance. Is it necessary? Ask your Catholic friend, do you have to confess to a priest? Nah, you don't have to. You're a bad Catholic. My kind of Catholic, but a bad Catholic. Because it's essential, according to the Pope. All mortal sins, of which penitents, after a diligent self-examination, are conscious, must be recounted by them in confession, even if they are the most secret and have been committed against the last two precepts of the Decalogue. That's the Ten Commandments. What are the last two? Lying and coveting. Did you covet this week? If you're a Catholic, you've got to go. It is an essential part of the sacrament of penance. That's why, if you're a good Catholic, and if I were a Catholic, I'd be there a lot, hanging out with this guy to get my sins fixed. I need restoration. So what do you do? Well, he's going to forgive my sins. He's going to absolve in the name of Christ, because Christ, only he can forgive, but it's mediated through the authority of the church. Now what do I do? Well, raised up from sin... I've confessed it. I've said it's wrong. The sinner must still recover his full spiritual health by doing something more to make amends for the sins. I got to do something now. He must make satisfaction or expiate his sins. 
You understand what that means? To atone for, to appease God. I got to fix it. The, the scales are out of balance there. I can't confess it, right? I can't 1 John 1, 9, I can't say, confess my sins, he's faithful and righteous, forgive my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Well, there's a little white space in between that sentence somewhere that says, go to the priest, get the assignment, and do something to expiate your own sin. This satisfaction is also called penance. That's all a part of it. So I've looked at how I got saved. I look at how I nourished my faith. I look at now how I sin and I get it back. I got to get it back through the mediation of the church. And I got to do something. I'm going to pray the rosary. I'm going to do some good works. I'm going to do whatever it is that the priest says. And it may change from time to time. And they put a loophole in there that I don't have to whip myself anymore. And the you know, priests in the Middle Ages might have been uptight. Now they're a little more lenient. But still, I have to go and make this right with the priest because I'm making it right with God via the priestly authority. 1461. Since Christ entrusted to his apostles the ministry of reconciliation, that's penance, bishops who are their successors and priests and the bishops collaborators continue to exercise this ministry. Continue. This is 1992. Redone, by the way, second edition, 2000. So in the 21st century, the bishops and its collaborators, the priests, they still exercise this ministry. Indeed, bishops and priests, by virtue of the sacrament of holy orders, they got authorized to do this when they took their vows and became priests have the power to forgive all sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. You need that, but they have the authority because they've been granted that authority through the sacrament of becoming clergy. But you know the Catholic Church still teaches all that? I bet you think this is just old stuff. And if you know your church history, well, this is the thing that Martin Luther got so mad at. You know, they were selling indulgences to build their cathedrals. They don't do this anymore. Oh, they do. Indulgences. Let's talk about indulgences. 1471, closely related to penance. The doctrine and practice of indulgences in the church are closely linked to the effects of the sacrament of penance. An indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins under certain prescribed conditions through the action of the church, which, as the minister of redemption, dispenses and applies with authority the treasure of the satisfactions of Christ and the saints. Do you, do you see what that's saying? Look at what it says. The doctrine and practice of indulgence closely linked with penance. An indulgence, what is it? It's a remission. That means the canceling out, blotting out, erasing before God of the temporal punishments due sin. There should be something that should happen to you. Something should hurt you. Something should sting you. Something should be painful to you. Before God, that temporal punishment should be under the prescribed conditions, which they get to tell you what they are, through the actions of the church, which, as the minister of redemption, dispenses and applies with authority the treasures of the satisfactions of Christ. They get to say when it's all good. End of, end of the saints. Indulgence is 1471. An indulgence is a partial or a plenary. That means all. A plenary is partial or plenary. It can, be, it can partly remove those temporal punishments or it can remove all the punishments of that sin according as it removes either part or all of the temporal punishments due to sin. The faithful can gain indulgences for themselves. So you can do that. Somehow do something, do some work to get that thing canceled off your account or you can apply it to the dead. So if you have somebody that died and you think, man, there was probably a lot of sin that they had yet to pay for, you can do something for them. You become now, in a sense, the vicarious payment. You do the pain. You do the time. And, and you get them out of trouble. Which is exactly, by the way, what was going on with the sale of indulgences that became the touch point of the Protestant Reformation. How does that work? 1472, to understand this doctrine, which I'd like to, and the practice of the church, it is necessary to understand that sin has a double consequence. 
Grave sin, let's just start with that, deprives us of communion with God. I, and then we understand that. Something in my fellowship is, is, is messed up and therefore makes us incapable of eternal life. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't, I don't believe that's not what the Bible teaches. The privation of which is called the eternal punishment of sin. Oh, I guess so. Depart from me, I never knew you. Into outer darkness, wailing, weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. Yes, that is hell to be cast out. On the other hand, every sin, even venial sins, even the misdemeanor sins, entails an unhealthy attachment to the creatures, which must be purified either here on earth or where, or after death in the state called purgatory. Huh? More on that in a minute. An indulgence is obtained, 1478. An indulgence is obtained through the church, who, by virtue of its power and binding, loosening, granting authority by Christ, intervenes in favor of the individual Christians and opens for them. Who does this? Well, the church does. Why? Because they have power by virtue of their binding and loosening granted by Christ. It intervenes for the individual Christians, opens up for them the treasury of the merits of Christ. They raise their hand, they do something in heaven. And the saints to obtain from the Father the mercies of remission. They are the gatekeepers of the temporal punishments due sins. You might even have a, a priest, which a lot, priests oftentimes are much more orthodox than you might think. But even if they want to fudge on this, this is the teaching of the church. Maybe you failed that class in seminary, but this is what the church teaches. And you can find them. You can get indulgences. Matter of fact, I have this one right here in my file. If you want to look at it, it was given to me, it was granted, I think, in 1950. You have this document, and it's on fancy paper, and it's signed. That gets you out of purgatorial pain. It reminds me of that scene in Clear and Present Danger. Remember that? When Jack Ryan says, if I go down, you're going down with me. And Ritter says, no, I'm not. He says, wrong again. I have an autographed get out of jail free card. And I love that line. And he says it so well that he's a Canadian actor, right? He says, you don't have one of these, do you, Jack? Right? Anyway, all right. 1479. Since the faithful departed, they're dead now. Your, your good Catholic grandfather. Now being purified. Oh, no, it's hard to think of. Are also members of the same communion of saints. They're all part of the universal Catholic church. One way we can help them is by obtaining indulgences for them so that the temporal punishments due for their sins may be remitted, canceled out. So you can get something from the church, dispense because they have access to the treasury of Christ and give you that remittance of sin. You can have that payment made for grandpa. And if you're a good Catholic, wouldn't you want to do that? Why? Because they're in a place called purgatory. Purgatory. Purgatory, an invention of, of the church, which they will claim is not an invention of the church. They go to 1 Corinthians 3 to try to prove this, which is not at all any room in that text for it. And I've sat there. I once sat at a college campus in Chicago, a secular campus. I was doing ministry there, and I had uh, like four priests, five priests around this table debating purgatory. I was just, you know, a college student and, you know, working on that campus and leading a, a Christian group. But we were debating purgatory and it was, you know, they're all dressed in their black, you know, robes and all that. And I'm, I'm a kid, you know, and I'm sitting there trying to debate purgatory. And, and I learned right there at that day with four or five of these priests around me, it doesn't matter what the Bible says at that point. If I can prove to them that first Corinthians three does not give room for this, we're back to what, where we started. There are three legs to this. You can't have the Bible stand on its own. One cannot stand without the others. You need the tradition of the church. And what are they taught about purgatory? And you need the magisterium of the church. What official doctrines have been given by the church about purgatory? And then I lose the argument. But I say, really, the argument shouldn't be about purgatory. The argument should be about authority and where we get authority and who says there's a purgatory. And that's what sparked the Reformation. That's why the cry of the Reformation was sola scriptura, 
which means we're not going to believe the magisterium and the tradition of the church are equal branches of God's revelation to man. We believe that the Bible is. It's the only infallible guide for life and doctrine. All right, purgatory. 1472, every sin, even venial, that's misdemeanor sins, small sins, entails an unhealthy attachment to creatures. This is what I quoted earlier, which must be purified either here on earth or after death in the state called purgatory. 1030, explained, all who die in God's grace and friendship. So I'm on his team, I got his jersey, but still imperfectly purified, which I stood in Vatican Square and I sat there with the high-ranking, I just pulled as many high-ranking guys as I could find, and I said, I want to talk about purgatory. I was stuck on this for my college days. And, and I said, tell me who goes to purgatory. Everybody. Well, everybody. Catholics, right? Uh, if you're in friendship with God. And I sat there and drilled them. I said, you mean, and I pointed, we were at Vatican Square, that you mean the Pope that's right behind these walls, he is going to suffer in purgatory? And he said, yeah, yeah, he will. I mean, not as long as you and I will. Right? He thinks I'm a Catholic. Clearly, he found that out before the end of the discussion. I wasn't, but... <laughs> he said, he doesn't think there's anybody on earth. And at one point, I got one of the high-ranking guys to say, maybe Mother Teresa. Maybe there's one that skipped it all. Anyway... All who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified. That's why I say, but still, that in most Catholics I've met, everyone's still imperfectly purified at death, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. They're going to be saved. But after death, they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joys of heaven. Now, you ask a Protestant, I hope, have you achieved the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven? You say, yes, I have, right? Through Christ. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I've been justified. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. I am now perfect before God in terms of my justification. That's not the case according to 1030 of the CCC. Purgatory, 1031. The church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned, but it feels a lot alike from what I've understood and read. The church formulated her doctrine on the faith of purgatory. I'm thinking, okay, drum roll. What, from what passages? And they will quote two, two or three passages. The, the primary text is 1 Corinthians 3, which I think a college kid should be able to show a well-educated priest that it's not possible from that passage. Anyway, where do you get it then? Well, even the latest doctrinal statement from Rome is going to say, well, we got it from the councils of Florence and Trent. And we're going to go, well, who cares what they said? And they're going to say, didn't we teach you the authority comes through the councils, especially the councils of the bishops and the council of the churches, the college of bishops and the, and the vicar of Christ? The, the, well, of course we can say that because it is the equal authority of, of Scripture. It, it, it speaks as the rest of God's revelation to men. So even in the latest doctrinal statement of Rome, they know it comes from councils. 1032, the teaching is also based on the practice of the prayers for the dead. Oh, now that's interesting. Already mentioned in sacred scripture, quote unquote. Therefore, Judas Maccabeus made atonement for the dead that they might be delivered from their sins. From the beginning, the church has honored the memory of the dead and offered prayers in suffrage for them above all the Eucharist sacrifice so that thus purified they may attain the beatific vision of God. They may be saved, beatific. They might be happy and blissful and see God in heaven. Judas Maccabeus, have you heard that? Okay, well, we should look at the passage. 2 Maccabees 12.39. If you need to learn about Maccabees and what that's all about, you need to go back about four years to a Christmas Eve message. And I did a whole thing on the platform. Hopefully you'll see the video because there was a lot of PowerPoint on that, on who he was, what that was all about, and what the Feast of Dedication was about, which is Hanukkah. And, and I taught on that. You can look it up on, on uh, Vocal Point website. But you should read this passage. 
Second Maccabees 12, 39 through 40. Judas Maccabeus is a military leader. Maccabeus means hammerhead, right? He's a, he's a fighter. So this is like Samson. Next day, Judas and his troops, I just say that because he's a fighter, had to collect the bodies of those who had been killed in the battle. And he was the commander. And to bring them home for burial in their family graves. But under the shirt of each dead soldier, uh-oh, they found good luck charms in the shape of those idols at the, temp- at the temple of Jamnia. Oh, you know, just crack up, you know, like the rabbit's foot. And, you know, it was obviously a religious, cultic charm, amulet. Oh, that wasn't good. Since our Jewish law does not allow us to wear such things, everyone knew why these soldiers had died in the fighting. They're trying to get these bodies ready, and they finally got these good luck charms on them. Our troops praise the Lord who judges fairly and makes secrets known. These guys were bad. They had good luck charms on them and they died and that's why they died, which is not always true, but that's what they concluded. They also begged the Lord to forgive this terrible sin. Judas, that wonderful man, said, you have seen for yourselves how God punishes those who disobeyed him. So I warn you not to sin. So he made this kind of a a moral tale for them, right? A little advisory cautionary tale. Then Judas collected from his troops 2,000 silver coins, which he sent to Jerusalem as payment for a sacrifice to forgive this sin. Judas did this generous and honorable thing because he firmly believed God raises the dead to life. Otherwise, it would have been useless and foolish of him to have spent this money on prayers for the dead. But he was a man of deep faith who was convinced that God's faithful servants would receive a wonderful reward after death. And so he paid a special sacrifice to take away the sins of those dead soldiers. There you have it. And you're right. You got a guy on a battlefield, intertestamental period. He recaptures Jerusalem's Temple Mount. He's got in a battle dead men there. He sends money, 2,000 silver coins to have a sacrifice made. And he says, I hope God is gracious to these guys. And why? Because he's trying to prove, and and he does believe by faith, that they're going to be raised from the dead. Believes in the afterlife. And he doesn't want God to hold this against them. This is the one passage and it's not scripture. And I invite you all to read the Apocrypha. If you've read the Bible through at least six times, you can read the Apocrypha through, and you'll find within the first, I mean, even if you just read, if you read it in a year, just as a supplement to your daily library, you'll find within the first month, this no way, sounds like, speaks like, smells like, reads like scripture. This is not God's word. And it has not been accepted as God's word by the Jewish canon. It's not even Hebrew text. It's Greek text. It's intertestamental text whatever. I don't have time to prove that to you, but the bottom line is the Apocrypha was never ever deemed to be scripture until the Council of Trent. When after Trent, when they got so attacked because of indulgences by the reformers, they needed somehow to prop up this selling of indulgences for the dead. And they said, well, this one passage in 2 Maccabees where a guy like uh, a Samson, a hammerhead fighter, yeah, he was a man of faith, did one thing on the battlefield by sending a collection that he took from the, from the soldiers to send a sacrifice so that God would be gracious to Israel and more particularly to them. That is the passage. I can't speak for Judas Maccabeus. All I can say, it was a very wishful thing to, to, to think, but it in no way squares with the selling of indulgences or the forgiveness of sins based on any part of the scripture. And this is not scripture which they said is. As a matter of fact, they said after the Council of Trent in the Counter-Reformation, if you do not hold the Apocrypha, those 13 
14 books, depends on how you append them to other books, the count is off, that's why, because some of them are additions to Esther and Daniel and other places, you then are anathema. You're going to hell if you don't have those books as part of your Bible, if you do not revere them as scripture. And this is the one passage they collected this for. Never understood as scripture until the Council of Trent. Someone listening want to debate me on that. They'll say, oh, it was read and it was read. And it was in, in, you had it all the way back to Jerome's time in the, in the writing of the Vulgate. It was, but even, even Jerome, when he translated that in the Vulgate, he made clear this is not scripture. We knew it's not scripture, but it was great, helpful historical information between the Testament. But if you're going to base your doctrine on one passage in Second Maccabees, there's a lot of stuff in the Apocrypha I guarantee you you don't want to build your doctrine on. Let's talk about Mary in five minutes. Oh, and by the way, if you think, oh, this is just weirdos who, you know, just to kind of go overboard on it, here's a church in Orlando, which I see when I'm there in Orlando, Mary, Queen of the Universe, which of course is one of her titles, and they believe that. Mary, all holy, ever virgin, mother of God, is the masterwork of the mission of the Son and the Spirit. Did you catch that? For the first time in the plan of salvation, and because his Spirit has prepared her, the Father found the dwelling place where his Son and his Spirit could dwell among men. I guess she is special with that statement, 722. She was by sheer grace, thanks for that, I understand she needs grace, conceived without sin, whoa, sinless. As the most humble of creatures, I understand she's humble, certainly compared to Zechariah in Luke 1. The most capable of welcoming the inexpressible gift of the Almighty, 490. To become the mother of, of the Savior, Mary was enriched by God with gifts appropriate to such a role. The angel Gabriel, at the moment of the Annunciation, when he announces this to her, salutes her as full of grace. Mary, full of grace. In fact, in order for Mary to be able to give the free assent of her faith to the announcement of her vocation to carry Christ, it was necessary that she be wholly born of God's grace. Well, there's a leap to say full of grace. I guess you mean technically full of grace, no sin in her at all. Mary, 490. Through the centuries, the church has become ever more aware, that's code for we built on this doctrine into a huge edifice, that Mary, full of grace through God, was redeemed from the moment of her conception. Well, of course, she's sinless. Why would she even need to be redeemed? That is the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. The Immaculate Conception is not a statement about Christ's conception. It's a statement about Mary's conception. Confesses, that's what the church, the dogma of the church confesses, as Pope Pius IX proclaimed in 1854. The most blessed virgin was from the first moment of her conception by a singular grace and privilege of almighty God and by virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, savior of the human race, preserved immune from all stain of original sin. Didn't sin, hasn't sinned, redeemed from conception. The fathers of the Eastern tradition call the mother of God the all-holy and celebrate her as free from any stain of sin as though fashioned by the Holy Spirit and formed as a new creature. She's just in a category by herself. By the grace of God, Mary remained free of every personal sin her whole life long. I'd say you you go back and listen to the sermon I taught in Luke chapter 1 on Mary's Magnificat when she praises God. One of the first things she says is that God has to be her savior to forgive her of, of sin. That certainly speaks to her sinful nature, but I don't have time to prove that to you now. But listen to that, Luke chapter 1, 494. Being obedient, she became the cause of salvation for herself. Did you catch that? And for the whole human race. The knot of Eve's disobedience. Boy, she sure messed things up. Was you untied by Mary's obedience. Think about the implications of that statement. What the virgin Eve bound through her disbelief, Mary loosened by her faith. Comparing her with Eve, they call her Mary, the mother of the living, and frequently claim death through Eve and life through Mary. So Mary's merit... In her actions in life, her sinless life, and her sinless behavior undid what Eve messed up in the garden. 
The deepening of faith in the virginal motherhood, this is 499, virginal motherhood, led the church to confess Mary's real and perpetual virginity even in the act of giving birth to the Son of God, made man. You follow what that's saying? I don't want to talk about it, but you get what that's saying. In fact, Christ's birth did not diminish her mother's virginal integrity, but sanctified it. Don't want it explained. And so, the liturgy of the church celebrates Mary as the ever-virgin. Now, I dealt with this when we talked through Luke, but they'd say, oh, you Protestants, against this doctrine, the objection is sometimes raised that the Bible mentions brothers and sisters of Jesus. The church has always understood these passages as not referring to other children of of the Virgin Mary. In fact, James and Joseph, the brothers of Jesus, are the sons of another Mary. little just misunderstanding there in the Bible. A disciple of Christ whom Matthew faithfully calls the other Mary. The Virgin Mary, 964, is acknowledged and honored as being truly the mother of God and of the Redeemer. She is clearly the mother of the members of Christ. That's you, if you were a Catholic. Since she has by her charity joined in bringing about the birth of believers in the church. She is joined in bringing about the birth of believers in the church who are members of its head. Mary, the mother of Christ, the mother of the church. 966. Finally, the Immaculate Virgin, Virgin, preserved free from all stain of original sin. When in the course of her earthly life was finished, she was taken up bodily and soul into heavenly glory and exalted by the Lord as queen over all things so that she might be the more fully conformed to her son, the Lord of lords and the conqueror of sin and death. You had to come up with that late in time in the Catholic Church because if she's born sinless, she's redeemed from birth, she has no stain of original sin, then if the wages of sin is death, what in the world is she doing dying? And when that question was asked enough in the monasteries of the church, they finally had to add this doctrine. Well, clearly she couldn't die. She had to be assumed up into heaven, the doctrine of the Assumption of Mary. The Assumption of the Blessed Virgin is a singular participation in her son's resurrection and an anticipation of the resurrection of other Christians. In giving birth, you kept your virginity, and in your dormition, your death, which meant leaving the world, your sleep, did not leave the world, O Mother of God. You were joined in the source of life. You conceive the living God, and by prayers will deliver our souls from death. By her complete adherence, this is 967, to the Father's will and to her Son's redemptive work and to every promoting of the Holy Spirit, the Virgin Mary is the church's model of faith and charity. She is your template. Thus, she is a preeminent and wholly unique member of the church. I told you, she's in a category by herself. Indeed, she is the exemplary realization of the church. As Mother Teresa liked to say, a co-redemptrix, a mediatrix, a advocate. She brings the graces to the church. In a holy, singular way, she cooperated her obedience, faith, and hope by the burning charity and the Savior's work of restoring supernatural life to souls. For this reason, she is the mother to us and the order of grace. And I know people, oh, they love Mother Teresa. She was so into the doctrine of Mary, just like Pope John Paul, and promoting these concepts of her being the co-redeemer, the co-mediator, and the advocate, much like Christ. Uh, serves as our advocate. If you want some blasphemous doctrines on, on Mary, just read Mother Teresa and Pope John Paul. Taken up into heaven, she did not lay aside this saving office. She still has it. But by her manifold intercession, she prays for us now, continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. Did you read that? By her manifold intercession, she continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. She is the mediator from heaven to the church, through the church to you. Therefore, the Blessed Virgin is invoked in the church under the titles Advocate, Helper, Benefactress, and Mediatrix. 
that should bother a few Protestants. The church's devotion to the Blessed Virgin is intrinsic to church worship. The church rightly honors the Blessed Virgin with special devotion. The liturgical feast dedicated to the Mother of God and the Marian prayer, such as the Rosary, is is an epitome of the whole gospel that expresses this devotion to the Virgin Mary. And I know people, you know, Mary, they just kind of put her on a higher pedestal. This is a core aspect of the mediatorial, redemptive work of Christ that we don't even have time to work into. This is the picture, by the way, one of the paintings, many paintings of the Fatima children in Portugal that claimed to have seen her back in 1917. Our Lady of Fatima, right? You're familiar with that? That was the closest Catholic church to my house as a kid, uh, Our Lady of Fatima. Not in Portugal. I didn't grow up in Portugal. It was a church in Long Beach, actually, that was called that. All right.